This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. has tens of thousands of troops permanently stationed overseas, mostly on bases that were established during the Cold War. But our next guest says that if the goal of the forces is deterring adversaries, the defense budget could go a lot further if it were geared toward quickly sending forces to trouble spots rather than keeping them in places like Korea and Germany. Those conclusions by the Stimson Center are based on a study of more than 100 foreign policy crises. For more, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu spoke with co-founder of the center and one of the study's co-authors, Barry Blackman. What we found was that when forces were moved into the region, that's when we were effective. That's when we were able to coerce foreign decision makers without having to go to war. When we relied on forces already in the region, for example, by drawing attention to the forces we have in Germany, that uh, was much less effective in getting people to do what we wanted them to do or not to do what we didn't want them to do. And when you, when you say drawing attention, what do you mean? That, that, that's a statement from the Pentagon or someone else just noting that we've got forces there, don't try anything? No, it had to be a physical, a physical change. So they would go on deployment, so they would do a joint exercise with the poles or so that there had to be a physical change in the in the disposition of the forces whether a movement or a change in the alert status you say in a couple places in the article that 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 those static forces that are permanently stationed overseas didn't seem to deter adversaries and it just seems like the word seem there is is doing quite a bit of work because i think advocates of forward deployed forces would probably argue that, you know, look, maybe Kim Jong-un wakes up every every single day thinking of all the bad things he'd like to do but can't because of the 40,000 U.S. soldiers that are stationed just across the border. Well, that's the argument that's always made for keeping forces there. Um, you know, we used to keep half a million troops in Europe, and uh, that came down to 300,000. But for decades, we had 300,000 or so troops in Europe. And the argument was that this deterred the Russians from invading Western Europe, but uh, we never found any evidence that this is a former study that the Russians ever intended to invade Western Europe. So, I mean, deterrence is that thing you can never prove. You only know when it fails. There are reasons to keep troops uh, in a region that familiarizes them with it. it they get to operate more frequently with allies. So that's all for the good, but it's very expensive to do that because for these permanent deployments, they're deployed with their families. And that means um, American-style living quarters. It means schools. It means PXs. It means officer clubs. It means recreational facilities. It's very expensive to do that, but it becomes part of the background. So when Kim Jong-il sees the troops down there, well, they've been there since 1953, and nothing has changed. But when we fly B-52s or B-1s along his coastline in response to some threat he made, that's a change. It's something that gets his attention because it's a new kind of threat. It's not the same old, same old. 
So if if the U.S. were to switch to more of a fast deployment strategy that, that's more CONUS-based, as, as you suggest here, I, I assume that's something we couldn't do overnight with the forces that we have today. What, what would the U.S. actually need to build in order to have that fast deployment surge capability? Well, we've been uh, moving that way for a, for a while. We do uh, these temporary deployments in Asia. You know, the Marines go to Australia every year for an exercise, and uh, the Air Force deploys to Guam for a temporary on a temporary basis. And uh, similarly, in Europe, we've been sending brigade combat teams into Eastern Europe for joint exercises. So these are just the soldiers alone, without their families, with their equipment. And we have the transport to do it um, on a small scale. We'd have to build more deployment assets. We'd have to straighten out our tanker situation, you know, with scandalous, really. We've been flying these uh, old uh, airborne fuel tankers for years, and um, modernizing them has been delayed forever. And most importantly, we'd have to improve the logistical facilities uh, in Europe itself. We kind of let the facilities deteriorate when we drew down after the Cold War, and we thought the Russians were going to be our friends. So we'd have to rebuild the military ports and the rail lines, which would get the heavy equipment from the ports and from airfields to the front lines in Eastern Europe or what would be the front lines in Eastern Europe. So for the most part... But that's, those are things that, you know, if we, wanna, if we want the Allies and the Germans specifically to spend more, those are things that we should be beating on them to do rather than, um, you know, necessarily building more forces of their own. Yeah, so for the most part, the facilities, the bases themselves actually stay, all of their logistics and medical and maintenance capabilities. But as far as large-scale combat formations, they're much more rotational locations rather than permanent basing locations. Right. Like in uh, Poland, for example, we will put um, divisional headquarters and some support units, but the battalions will rotate in, or brigades will rotate in and out. Similarly with uh, air forces, we permanently put some support units at airfields in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic countries, for example, and in Romania. Uh, But the squadrons, the fighter squadrons, they go in for a few weeks, do an exercise, and then come back home where they're based, where their families are. It's cheaper that way, and they still familiarize themselves with the potential battlefield, and they still get the experience of working with the allied nations. You can accomplish the same thing. Last question just on the issue of costs. Would this really be a net cost savings? Because this approach isn't free. I mean, you're going to work your carriers harder. You're going to work your air mobility fleets harder. Probably need more assets. They're going to be have to be, be maintained more often because you're working them harder. How, how much money do you think you actually save in the end? Have you worked out the numbers? No, we haven't looked looked at the costs explicitly. That's a good next step for us. 
But for the naval naval forces, for the Marines, and for the Air Forces, I don't think it'll be much of a change. They've already shifted in that direction, and carriers go out on a regular schedule, and they stay out for a long time, and they have since 9-11, really. The Air Force has been doing temporary deployments for well more than a decade. So I don't think it would be an incremental cost for those two services. It would cost more for the Army, which tends to be more sedentary and is harder to move given its heavy equipment. So that would be some an incremental cost. But it would also, you know, it would avoid all kinds of problems like we have with local populations sometimes who resent having a bunch of Americans deployed there, uh, particularly in Asia. You know, we've had these problems with the Japanese forever and the Koreans so to a lesser extent. So I, I'm not sure where the balance comes out. But it wouldn't be incremental costs for the Navy or the Air Force. It would only be for the ground forces. And interestingly, we found actually the most effective deployment was um, a marine amphibious group uh, because you send, it's called an LHA. It's, it's an aircraft carrier the size of the Chinese aircraft carrier that we're so worried about. You know, we have eight of them, and we don't count them as aircraft carriers. But they have these VSOL aircraft on them, which are quite capable, and they carry, you know, a battalion landing team of Marines. So it's a quite a potent force, and we found, in terms of coercing other nations, uh, sending um, one of these Marine groups in is, is probably the most effective, had the best results of anything. Barry Blackman, co-founder of the Stimson Center, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. We'll post this interview and a link to the article and the study we've been discussing at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.